Okay, good morning again. Um, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We have been in a series the last eight weeks uh, looking at what the New Testament says about the church. And uh, we are finishing that series this morning. Uh, we've been looking at these eight marks of the church, and the, the mark of the church that we are considering this morning is that the, the church is the sent and scattered people of God. And uh, I, I guess when I planned to uh, preach on that topic the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I didn't realize how for many in our church we'd be taking that quite literally true the, uh, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, that we would be scattered around the country in various places. Um, but you're here, and that is... That's great, because otherwise it's just me talking to myself. Um, <laughs> so thanks for being here. First Peter uh, chapter 2, if you're following in one of the Blue Bibles, you can find that on page 1015. And uh, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read God's Word. First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. <clears throat> the Apostle Peter says this, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you haven't led us to uh, figure things out on our own. And so, God, as we give our attention to your word this morning, would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? Would you make Jesus more real in our lives? We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, many of you know that um, for six years before we moved here, Ashley and I um, lived in, uh, we spent six years living in Salt Lake City, and often... Um, People will ask when they talk, there's a couple questions people find, usually ask when they find out about uh, that we lived in Utah, but uh, you know, after Mormons and after skiing, the next thing people talk about is uh, the Great Salt Lake, and people want to know, what, what is the Great Salt Lake like? And um, um, uh, you know, the Great Salt Lake is this massive, massive inland body of water. Uh, it, it is four times, four to five times as salty as the Pacific Ocean. And so you can float in it like crazy. And people ask, you know, what's the Great Salt Lake like? And the truth is I've never been in it um, because it's disgusting. Uh, there's a couple times a year where the city of Salt Lake, in the w when the wind blows just right, you get this effect called lake stink, which is it's just the stink of the lake blows into the city, and it's gross. Um, I've never been in the Great Salt Lake. I wouldn't let my kids go in the Great Salt Lake because it's disgusting. Nothing grows in the Great Salt Lake. It is quite literally a dead lake. And um, the reason for that is apparently that there are many inputs into the Great Salt Lake. Many streams and rivers flow into the Great Salt Lake, but there is no outlet for the Great Salt Lake. And so water flows in uh, and then evaporates and the salt is left 
and it's putrid and it's gross and it's disgusting. It's a dead lake. This morning we are finishing this series on the church. Uh, what is the church and what is our role in the world? And what I want you to hear uh, this morning is this, that the church is not a reservoir, the church is a river. The church is a river, not a reservoir. Over the last eight weeks, we have talked about um, the marks of the church, but really these are blessings that God has given to the church. We are a son-confessing church. We are a scripture-keeping church. We are a spirit-sanctified church. Uh, we have the sacraments. We have all, all these blessings God has given to the church that we've looked at over the last eight weeks. Uh, they're incredible. And what I want to tell you this morning is that they're not for you. Or at least they're not only for you. They're for you, but they're for you to receive as a blessing from God, but then to give away. We are not a reservoir of God's blessing. We are a river of God's blessing uh, for the world around us. The church is a river where we experience God's blessing, but we give it away to others. And in that way, those blessings are multiplied. Whenever the uh, mindset prevails that the church is a reservoir, that the church is a place where we hold on to the blessing of God and we do not give them away to others. Um, the same thing happens in the church as what happens at the great, in the Great Salt Lake. Water that is a source of life, that is essential to, to life and growth and flourishing actually becomes putrid, becomes stale and stagnant, it becomes a swamp. And some of us here, I think at Resurrection OC, some of us are here because um, the world is a hard place to live. And uh, the world has chewed us up and spit us out. Or some of us are here because the church has not been a place of rest for us. And when that's our experience, I think the temptation can be to hear of the blessings that God has given the church and think of them as something that we need to hold on to, as something that we need to protect from the outside world. And that is precisely the wrong um, the wrong mindset. Friends, what I need you to hear me say this morning is that if we hold on to these things like we can protect them for ourselves, they will be not a source of life to us, they will be a source of death to us. But if we hear of these blessings that God has given his church and we experience them for what they are, but we see it as our job not just to experience them ourselves, but to give them away to others, then it will be like a, a stream of living water flowing through us. They will multiply. They will be a source of life. I've been wanting to, um, to say this. I've been trying to think of how to say this, and this is, I think, the time to say this in this series. I want to I tell you why I, I love the church. Um, I want to tell you why, in some ways I'm a pastor, but, but really why I love the church of Jesus. Uh, when I was seven years old, my dad... Uh, moved out of my family's house. And uh, my parents' marriage was on the rocks, and my dad left, uh, moved out, and my parents were separated. And for three months, my dad lived somewhere else that I, I don't know where he lived. And at the end of that time, um, he moved back home. He, uh, he, he and my mom got back together. And, uh, and one of the conditions for their reconciling and working through the issues in their marriage was that our family was going to start going to church. And so at seven years old, the church entered my life and saved my parents' marriage. And then uh, many, several years later, 
you know, as an awkward, um, insecure middle school student. I could probably say that a little bit shorter. As a middle school student, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, entering a new school and not knowing where to sit at lunch and, and not having any friends and socially aware enough to know that, you know, I should have friends, but, but I didn't know where they sat and uh, it was a new school, all that kind of stuff. Um, somebody from, I remember uh, early in my middle school days going to an event and sitting there and just being by myself and somebody from uh, my church getting up and just coming over and sitting by me. And uh, <laughs> it's so funny to say, like, I don't know if it's funny to say this, the church saved my parents' marriage, it saved my social life in, in middle school. In high school, one uh, evening after a concert, my youth pastor took me aside and he said, you know, I think I see something in you. And I think that maybe God is calling you to be a pastor. And the church gave my life meaning and purpose. And when Ashley and I got married and we were newly married and moved to a city where we knew no one, uh, there was a church there that welcomed us and gave us a family. And then a year later when we moved to a country where we knew no one, there was a church there that welcomed us and gave us a family. And over and over and over again, all my life, I have been the recipient uh, of the blessing that God has give, uh, gives his people in the form of the church. Um, it has been through the church that I have experienced God's love over and over and over again. And I want to be a part of being that for others. And it is the mission and the passion of my life to be a part of giving away what I have received through the church. That's why we're here. I don't want us to be hoarders of God's blessing. I want us to be people. I want us to be a church who have received and give away God's blessing. Friends, this is who we are. God has given his church a mission. And I don't know about you, but that is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Uh, I, I'm so excited to talk about the mission that God has given his people because uh, this is what God is doing in the world and he is inviting us to be a part of it. That excites me. That gives me something to live for. But in case that doesn't motivate you, uh, let me ask you to consider this. We all have a mission in life. We all have something in life that we are pursuing, that we are living for, that we're saying this is what will bring my life significance and meaning. The question is, do you have a mission worth living for? I heard this story um, a couple weeks ago about a couple of guys who um, just so fed up with street signs, the typos on street signs in, in our country, that they got uh, you know, tape and markers and spray paint and they've gone on this mission um, I gotta, I gotta read this because it's, it's worth getting it right. This is their mission, changing the world one typo at a time. I mean, you know, we're all worried about the slow children in all of our neighborhoods, but um, I mean, that's, that's their mission in life, fixing typos on street signs. I mean, I, whatever, <laughs> right? Uh, I guess somebody's gotta do it. Um, what is your mission in life? The mission of many of those of us in the Western world has been described as the pursuit of personal peace and comfort. That's, that's the mission that uh, most of us have dedicated our lives to without really even knowing it. Um, 
And so in that context, often we go to church because we think that if we go to church that God will get on board with my mission, our mission of pursuing personal peace and comfort. And when we enter uh, difficult times in life, we don't know what to do. And when God doesn't fulfill our mission in life, we turn our back in, on him. But we are increasingly living lives where we are desperate, where we are desperate for meaning, where there is nothing in the meaning bucket of our lives. Do you have a mission? God has given the church a mission. It's not our personal peace. It's not our comfort. It's not protecting our families. What is the mission? How do you think about your life? I was reading recently about a, a dad who had some small children, and like most uh, little kids, the, his dad, his kids were afraid of the dark. And so every night he would put them to bed and they'd say, Dad, we're afraid, we're afraid. You know, what if there's, there's monsters? So, you know, there's something hiding under the bed. Maybe there's something in the closet. And so the dad began this nightly ritual where he would take the kids down to their room and they would stand outside the door and, they, and he, he said, we're going to charge the darkness. And they would stand there and say, okay, we're going to charge the darkness. And they would count down three, two, one. And the dad would rush into the room. And he would, <laughs> he said he would go into the, into the closet and he would kind of mimic the noises of like a monster eating him. And then he would call it all clear. And then, the, and then the next kid and the next kid would charge the darkness and run into the room. Friends, that is our mission. We have a Savior who has charged the darkness. And he calls us to follow him one by one. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The darkness will not prevail. Jesus goes first, and we come right behind. The church is a river. It is not a reservoir. Have you embraced God's mission for your life? That is God's mission for our lives, friends. What would it take for us to live that out? Well, really what I want you to see in 1 Peter chapter 2 is this. We have to clarify our identity. If we are going to be the people that God has called us to be in the world, we're going to be the sent and scattered church, the sent and scattered people of God. We're going to have to be much, much clear about who we are. I don't know if anybody's paying attention to this, but um, this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is at least the second, it's maybe the third time I've preached on this passage this fall. I don't know if anybody's noticed that. Um, there's so much in this passage. I love this passage. But really what I want you to pay attention to um, this morning is just two words in this passage, really. Um, two words. If we are going to be the people that God has called us to be in this world, we have got to clarify our identity. And so the words that I want you to pay attention to are the words sojourner and exile. We are sojourners and exiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me see if I can help us understand what that means. And I should probably say this. With the eight marks of the church that we've discussed, I think this is the hardest one for American Christians to get our heads around. It is the hardest for us to understand. Um, it runs counter to our instinct. Okay, let me ask this question. Why did Jesus come to earth? If you ask anybody in the church, if you ask many non-Christians, why did Jesus come to earth? Uh, the response is, Jesus came to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. Right? That's, I mean, that's what everybody thinks. That's why Jesus came. The you know, interesting problem with that is that that's not what Jesus said his mission was. Um, 
When, at, when Jesus had the opportunity to say why he came, he talked about the kingdom of God. Uh, if you go to um, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the first things Jesus does uh, in his ministry is he enters a synagogue where he grew up. And he reads a passage from the book of Isaiah. And he says to the people gathered there, he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes around, um, around Galilee saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then a, a few years later, um, when John the Baptist is about to be executed, John the Baptist sends some of his followers to Jesus. And, um, and he sends his followers to Jesus to ask him, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we were expecting? Are you the one uh, that, that we are, should put our hope in? Or is there somebody else uh, who's coming? And Jesus sends this response back. He says, uh, the lame walk, the blind see. And if these things are happening, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then at the, uh, a after the resurrection, after that first Easter Sunday in Acts chapter 1, it talks about what did Jesus do between his resurrection on Easter Sunday and when he ascended into heaven. In Acts 1, verse 3, it says this is what he did. It says, He presented himself alive to them, to the disciples, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the beginning of his life, the middle of his life, almost the end of his life, and then um, Jesus, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. It's not terribly surprising if we get this wrong, I suppose, because Jesus had to continually clarify this message for his disciples. Uh, you know, the, the, the 12 men who spent every day with Jesus for three years, followed him around, saw everything he did, continually got this wrong. And so when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, um, they come to him and say, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I know that we don't speak like that. Uh, if they said that in 2019 language, what they would have said is, Jesus, will you at this time make Israel great again? Get it? <laughs> they thought completely in this worldly terms. Uh, this is a political kingdom. Uh, it's fascinating. Jesus, as far as I can tell, never said anything about the Roman occupation of Israel. And yet at the end of his, earth, uh, his ministry, he's about to ascend into heaven. The last thing he leaves, last words he speaks to his, uh, his followers, the last thing he says to them is this, I have come to bring the kingdom of God in your midst. And now that I'm leaving, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you are going to be witnesses to my kingdom, and you are going to be now taking over the work of expanding my kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and on to the very ends of the earth. I know that was a really long way to answer that question of what was Jesus' mission. The kingdom of God, but this is so foreign to us that we have to take the time to see just how thoroughly this influenced and infused everything Jesus did. Jesus' mission is the kingdom of God. The rule and the reign of God over every part of life, pushing the darkness back, bringing light, righting every wrong. Jesus says that's his mission. And he says it's our mission as well. Paul says that if we are in Christ, then, we are, then our citizenship is in heaven. Right? Because if we are in Christ, even though we live on this earth, we are citizens of another kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. 
And then that's when we get, that's how we get back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, Peter's writing to Christians living in a pluralistic society where nobody cares about their cute little faith. And Peter writes to them to encourage them. And he says, you are sojourners and exiles. You are not citizens of this earthly nation. You are citizens of the kingdom of God. And what that means for them and for us is that, um, is that we experience life now. As we experience life now, no matter where we live, we live like immigrants. We live like uh, resident aliens. We live like exiles. We live like sojourners. We live like expatri expatriates. It's very, very, very hard for American Christians to understand this. Uh, because we tend to think sort of subtly that being a Christian in America kind of puts us like at the pinnacle of human culture. And it's just not true. It's just not true. And I'm not saying it's the worst place to be, but it's certainly not a sign that we have arrived. The Bible says we are strangers, we are sojourners, we are exiles. Here's the point. If you are in Christ, your identity is tied to the kingdom of God. Your identity is tied to the kingdom of God. Jesus is not a candidate, candidate asking for your vote in 2020. He is a king who is calling for your allegiance. This is who we are. And when our allegiance is tied to the kingdom of God, we experience life in this world wherever we may live as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers. One of the many blessings in my life is in God's providence, as he's worked in, in, in my life in various ways, one of the ways that he has kind of shaped me and blessed me is that he has, uh, that, that I lived overseas for a period of time. And one of the things that, and, and let me just be clear, because <laughs> like, when we think of exiles and uh, sojourners, you know, we probably are thinking of people in refugee camps or, or that sort of thing. I lived overseas for three years. I was in no way suffering. I just want to make clear, like I'm not saying that. But even in the best of circumstances, living in a place that is not your home, you are constantly confronted with how weird the world is. Um, I lived in Scotland for three years. I tried to open a bank account in Scotland and they're like, do you have letters of reference? I'm like, no, but I have money and I'd like to put it in the bank. And they're like, but we don't know who you are. I'm like. I'm from America with money. Where do I? I tried to make a doctor's appointment on a, t on a Tuesday, but I called them on Wednesday. They said, we can make you an appointment. Uh, let me say it like this. I called them on a Wednesday. I'm trying to make an appointment, let's say, for Thursday. They said, well, we can make you an appointment for next Wednesday. I said, how about next Thursday? They said, you have to call back tomorrow. I'm like, why can't you just flip the page over in the appointment book? To the, like, we don't do it that way. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, you know, there's a few of us who, uh, in, in this room, who weren't born in the U.S. Like, you understand what this like. And here's the problem, guys, is that if you think that living in South Orange County is normal, <laughs> oh, man, it's going to be really hard to live as a sojourner in an exile. This is not, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Even in the best of circumstances, living as an exile, you are acutely aware of how strange everything is, and we will never live out the mission God has given us as a church if we don't see how strange the place is that we live. We cannot, I mean, think about this. We cannot charge the darkness of Orange County if it doesn't seem dark to us. If we think of our 
non-Christian friends, as people who are pursuing uh, personal peace and comfort, they're just doing it in a little different way than we are, and we've got God on our side, then we won't see how weird this place is. And so how do you charge the darkness that you don't even see as dark? We will never, never give away to others the blessing that God has given his church if we see them as just one way among many to pursue personal peace and comfort. And that's why we have to clarify our, clarify our identity. So who are you? Who are you? We began this series eight weeks ago saying that we are a son-confessing church. We're not making this up. That's what Jesus says. <sighs> we are a son-confessing church. Our identity comes from Jesus. Our world says that your identity comes from you. It's up to you. You have to make it up yourself. You can, you can tell us who you are at any point. You can change it whenever you want. And friends, what that is, is tyranny masquerading as freedom. The pressure to define yourself through what you do and say, perform. Jesus came into this world, God in the flesh, and he said this, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. If your identity comes not through what you do, but through what Jesus has done for you, then you are truly free. Jesus came into this world, God in the flesh. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. In doing so, he gives us his perfection. He takes the penalty that we deserve. He pays the price of our death. On the third day, he ascended, uh, he, he rose from the grave, and then he ascends into heaven. He sends the spirit into our hearts, into our lives, to give us real life. Uh, he feeds us, he nourishes us, he, or he, he cleanses us with the sacraments. He makes us one by his spirit. And then he sends us back into the world in order to give all of this away. This is who we are. Children of the king, sojourning here in this strange place together as a church, giving away the blessings of God like a river instead of hoarding them like a swamp. That is who we are. And we've got to understand that if we're going to act like the people God has called us to act. It all begins with our identity. So we've got to clarify our identity. And that's basically what I want to say. But what I want to finish with uh, in a few more minutes, don't get too antsy yet. I've got a couple more things to say. <laughs> is this, what does that look like? Okay, like that's great. This is our identity, a kingdom of God. What does this actually look like? And there's really three Three things that I, I think come out of this passage that I want to kind of tease out for us. I'm going to say them a little bit differently. Three, way, three things that this looks like. Um, we have to take our discipleship seriously. We have to take our discipleship seriously. Secondly, we have to stop playing the blame and shame game. And then thirdly, we've got to live out our kingdom vocation. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, we have to take our discipleship seriously, firstly. Uh, in chapter 11, uh, verse 11, 1 Peter 2, it says this, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. We live in a time that says, I am what I feel. And we see that in many, many, many ways. You know, uh, 
in, in may, maybe a more extreme way, you know, what does it look like to say I am what I feel? Well, that might look like uh, one morning you wake up and you look at the person lying next to you in bed and you say, I don't feel the way about you that I used to, and so I'm leaving. It uh, doesn't matter what commitments I've made, what promises I've made, how it may affect anybody else, because I am what I feel. I have to be true to myself. Um, we think that that's what freedom is. That's what many in our world would call freedom, but friends, is it possible that what we call freedom, God actually calls slavery? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. What does that mean? The passions of the flesh... Uh, isn't that such a great, I mean, I could explain this in more detail, but anybody who's lived any period of time knows what it feels like to know that there are things that I want so desperately and they are fickle and they conflict with each other. And if I follow them, it will literally tear me apart. It will figuratively tear me apart. Let me be clear about that. <laughs> the passions of the flesh wage war against my soul. And so because we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we have to abstain from the tyranny of doing whatever feels right in the moment, and instead we have to take our discipleship seriously. Discipleship, or at least one aspect of discipleship, it means giving attention to the spiritual disciplines that believers have practiced for thousands of years. Reading the Bible, praying, going to church, practicing hospitality. I mean, there's more than that, but I think that those four are core. I talked about that in more detail a couple weeks ago. Doing those things does not make you a Christian. Um, and yet, I don't think that there's any way to live as a Christian without engaging in spiritual disciplines. I keep talking about this. Um, there's more coming in January. We're going to kind of begin to roll out some uh, discipleship kind of strategy for our church. And I'm saying this over and over again because I hope by the time we actually do this that you're going like, finally, stop talking about it. We're actually going to do this. Um, here's the reason this is so important. Spiritual disciplines. Okay, if I'm training for a marathon and somebody offers me a donut, it's really easy to be like, I don't want a donut because I'm training for a marathon. The problem in my life is I'm not training for a marathon and so I have no discipline when it comes to food. And going back to passions that wage war against my soul, living in a world that says you are what you feel is like somebody offering you a donut every 13 seconds, and you're just using your willpower to say no, and I don't have that much willpower, and you don't either. And so we have to begin to engage in these spiritual disciplines because they shape us in ways that allow us to push back against the passions of the flesh. Without spiritual disciplines, our lives look exactly like everyone else's. And if we're going to live, live lives as exiles and sojourners without accommodating, kind of just blending into the culture so we look exactly like everybody else, or if we're going to live lives as exiles and sojourners, but we're not going to become kind of fundamentalist isolationists where we detach ourselves from culture, the only option is to live together in a way that is shaped by scripture and prayer and the life of the church and practicing hospitality. There's just no other way to do it. We've got to recover and take seriously what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. 
we have to take our discipleship seriously. It's not just a good idea if you're a Christian. It's not like number seven on our priority list. We have to take it seriously. Second thing this looks like is we have to refuse to play the blame and shame game. This is so important because this is literally going to happen to you. I do mean literally in this, in this case. This is what's going to happen to you this week. You're going to be sitting around a table eating a meal with extended family and somebody's going to say something really, really stupid. Right? <laughs> and then you're going to respond. <laughs> or if it doesn't happen this week, it'll happen in the next five, four weeks, five, four and a half weeks, right? Or if it doesn't happen in the next four or five weeks, you know that there's going to be an election in like 11 months in our country. And we, uh, you know, what is an American election is, is the, uh, the civil transition of power. Not anymore, though, is it? It's not very civil anymore, is it? And um, it's, not, it's not civilized at all. And so in the next 11 months, we're going to experience uh, so much nastiness in our culture. Um, on the internet, around dinner tables, with friends or former friends or people who are friends until they open their mouths. Uh, and people on the left, they're going to say things that people on the right are going to hate. And people on the right are going to say things that people on the left are going to hate. And people on the left are going to say that people on the right are just racist, greedy capitalists. And people on the right are going to say that people on the left are destroying the foundations that this country was built on. Or uh, you can, you know, use your imaginations. Somebody's going to say something like that, and based on your temperament, you're going to disagree. And you're going to have the opportunity to respond. And when we hear these comments that we think are stupid, our instinct is to lash out and to blame the other side for everything that's wrong or to shame the other side and say, that's disgusting. How can you think that? What's wrong with you? Are you stupid? Or much worse. And friends, I think that this is a huge opportunity for the church because look at what Peter says in chapter, or in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. When he says Gentiles, just think outsiders. Keep your conduct among outsiders honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he returns. Our culture is so used to thinking in terms of left and right that few of us realize there is another option. Christianity is not either of those options. It embraces and critiques both of those options. And if we refuse to, place, uh, to play the blame and shame game because our worth is in Christ, not in political ideology, when we hear somebody say something that we disagree with, we can respond not with blame or with shame, but maybe by, in an honorable way, speaking words that say, you know, there's a third option here. Uh, the, the gospel actually kind of critiques what you said, although I embrace some of it. But mostly if we could just... <laughs> I had a conversation with somebody a, week ago, a couple weeks ago. He said, I just wish we could be kind. Of course, nobody, nobody disagrees with that. The problem is how, how do you get kindness to come out of you? <laughs> right? How do you get kindness to come out of you? It's, all, it's, it's through the power of the gospel. 
And what, what Peter's saying in, in, in verse 12 here is that if kind words come out of your mouth, if you refuse to blame and shame people, then people who disagree with you are going to see the way you respond. And even though they think you're evil, they're going to glorify God. That's incredible. That's incredible. Thirdly, we have to live out our kingdom vocation. So here's the question. Do we have a sense of the way in which our everyday life connects to the kingdom of God? Do we have a sense uh, as a people of how Sunday morning worship connects to Monday through Friday work? Or are they just totally separate things for us? For many Christians, our faith has become a purely private thing. It's just between me and Jesus. But for the earliest Christians, the only way to live in this world as sojourners and exiles was to do it as a community, to do it as a church, to do it together. We cannot do this alone. Um, for many Christians today, it seems like church is an option, right? It's probably a good idea, but it's, you know, take it or leave it. Um, and what I want to say is this, um, going to church isn't the goal. In fact, in some ways, I, I don't know if this is our culture or sort of the culture that, that we have maybe inadvertently built or, or established at, at Resurrection OC, but I feel like in some ways we've established a culture where the goal is to get people to go to church. And, and what I want you to hear me say is that the goal is not to go to church. Uh, the goal is discipleship. The mission is the kingdom of God. The goal isn't to go to church. Going to church isn't the goal. It's the prerequisite. We can't do this on our own. We cannot do this on our own. We will never make any progress on our own, but together a ragtag community of people like us with the power of the Holy Spirit at work through us, experiencing the blessing of God, but not hoarding it for ourselves, but giving it away, can do an incredible amount of good in this world. Now, this is a great time to look around on um, the Sunday before Thanksgiving and be like, there's not that many people here today. And even if everybody's here, it's a very small church, right? That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I heard this, um, somebody sent me a YouTube video this week. It was a very, very short documentary. It's four minutes long uh, of, of something that has happened in Yellowstone National Park over the last 20 years. And uh, I didn't know this at all, but Yellowstone National Park was apparently beginning, uh, approaching what some people were uh, calling like ecological collapse in the, in the uh, 80s and 90s. And what was happening is that um, uh, deer and elk had grazed uh, to the point where they had just overgrazed to the point where it was destroying, uh, the vegetation was so worn down, it was uh, destroying the uh, ecological systems in Yellowstone National Park. And so in 1995, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone. And... Um, this documentary said this is, the, this is one of the most sci uh, significant scientific findings in the last 50 years, what happened when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone National Park in 1995. Uh, because, of course, wolves killed some of the deer. But that's not really the main thing that happened. See, what happened was when they put wolves back into the park, uh, deer there were certain places where deer stopped going, like in the valleys and gorges where they could be easily trapped. The deer stopped, stopped going there. 
And as they stopped going to these places, the vegetation began to regrow. And it says in certain places over a period of six years, trees grew five times as tall. What that means is entire forests came back to life. And when the forests came back to life, then the birds returned to Yellowstone. And uh, when the birds returned to Yellowstone, um, uh, the bird, well, the birds came back and then the number of beavers began to increase. And beavers uh, build dams and rivers that create habitats not just for themselves but for numerous other species of animals. And then the wolves killed coyotes which meant that rabbits and mice multiplied which meant there were more eagles and more hawks and more ravens and more foxes um, and other animals um, continued to flourish and thrive. Uh, the bears even um, benefited from this. Okay, so all of these animals' uh, populations increase, the, uh, the, you know, the, the vegetation grows. That's amazing, but what's even more amazing is this, that the wolves actually changed the course of rivers. Because what they found was that as the vegetation grew up and as the trees continued to grow, that it stabilized the riverbanks and there were less collapses on riverbanks. And so rivers that had meandered uh, grew straighter and they were deeper and so there were pools where animals could, could drink. Um, that's incredible, isn't it? Reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone changed not just the ecology but the physical geography of Yellowstone National Park. Now, I love two things about about that kind of illustration. Uh, and the, the two things are the, these. How many wolves do you think it took to change, make that much change in Yellowstone National Park? You think probably thousands of wolves, right? Or like hundreds at least. 14 wolves, okay? 14 wolves. Imagine the power of God at work through a small church of people who are living life on mission together. It would be unstoppable. It would be unstoppable. But the second thing I love about that story is this, that before they released the wolves, the rangers did not put on seminars for them about how to improve Yellowstone National Park. They just released them and let wolves be wolves. And I know I've said almost nothing about what kind of the external thrust of it looks like, what does it look like for us kind of externally to live as these scattered and sent people of God in the world. And the reason for that is this, that we simply just need to be who we are. I mean, sure, there are programs and there are techniques and there are things we could do. Uh, there are strategies we can employ. That's not bad. But mostly we just need to be the people that God has called us to be. We need to be disciples who take our discipleship seriously. We need to refuse to blame and shame people. And we need to go into our neighborhoods and our families and our workplaces with a sense of how the worship of Sunday morning connects to the work of Monday through Friday. And friends, I believe that if we were to clarify and embrace our identity as a church, that God would do incredible things through us. Last week I had a, a fundraising appointment it's getting to be that time of the year as we get towards the end of the year where uh, uh, I often ask people, uh, supporters of our church, not people in our church, to continue uh, writing a large check. <laughs> and I was uh, meeting with these two businessmen and um, last week and one of them said to me, he said, Bryce, can I be honest? Like, you've come and talked to us for three or four or five years now. 
and you usually say the same thing, but you just seem a little bit more tired every time. And I said to him, thanks. I just don't want to like lie to you <laughs> going forward. But then I said, listen, we're just getting started. We're just at the very beginning of what I think God wants to do through Resurrection OC. As we clarify our identity and live out that identity in the world where God has placed us. This is who we are, friends. Would you pray with me? Oh God, would you do what only you can do? We can uh, hear these words and we can critique or disagree or embrace or be inspired by them, but God, we cannot cause kindness to come out of us. Um, we can't be the people you've called us to be unless you do in us what only you are capable of doing. And so we thank you for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how that transforms everything about our lives. And I pray, God, that we would hear this call to discipleship, to follow Jesus in this world. Holy Spirit, please have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.